Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and for the opportunity once again to come to your word and to learn not only your perspective on the church, but how we should see and interact with the church. Oh, Father, we praise you for revealing these things to us. These are the mysteries that have been kept hidden from past generations and ages, but have now been revealed to your saints, your people. And we delight in them, and we rejoice in them. And we ask you, Father, now to minister these truths to our hearts and change us, we pray, so that we will be more pleasing to you. We couldn't be more um, righteous in your sight than we are because we have Christ as our righteousness. And yet we know that we could please you more by our behavior and our thinking and our ministry to one another. Oh, Father, be glorified now as these truths have their effect. May we willingly and eagerly lay ourselves open to the sway of your Spirit as your word is proclaimed, and all of it for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning, we're actually going to be all over the book of Ephesians and a couple other places. Over the past three weeks, we've been learning something of what the Bible teaches about the church. And as I have repeatedly emphasized throughout this series, is that the church is God's most precious possession. That is, there is nothing that God loves more outside of the Trinity than the church for which Jesus died. And we have discovered this theme in several passages of Scripture. For example, from Ephesians chapter 1, we learned all about God's eternal love. That's eternity past, his eternal love for the church, and also his present love for the church, and also his future love for the church. All of it in chapter 1 of Ephesians. And then we moved on to Matthew chapter 16, where we learned about the, the permanence of the church and the invincibility of the church. And then we backtracked again to Ephesians chapter 5, where we were delighted to learn about the preciousness of the church, how precious the church is to Jesus. We considered the fact that in Ephesians, Paul tells us that the church is Jesus' body. The church is Jesus' bride. And we, his people, individually and collectively, are his children. This is a family. This is a community. And all of this has come to us from the perspective of heaven. It's how God views the church. It's how God wants us to understand how he views the church. This morning, however, I want us to shift gears from thinking about the church from the perspective of the throne of God, and rather now to the perspective of how we should view the church in the normal Christian life. How do we, as just regular people, seeking to be pleasing to the Lord in our day-to-day -day living, how should we view the church? Uh, the fact that God has established the church and loves the church and sustains the church necessitates that there be, there, there be practical implications for God's people, and there are, and there are many, 
and we will not be able to even touch on them all today. In other words, what we're saying here is that embracing these truths about the church should change the way we live. And for some of us, it's going to require more change than for others. But all of us should look at the mirror of God's word and say, Father, show me me. Help me to see where I need to change. Help me to see what you want to to do in my heart and give me the grace to submit to that. One of the primary changes that takes place when God rescues us from the kingdom of darkness and adopts us into his family is that we stop self-identifying merely as Christian individuals and begin thinking of ourselves as members of the community of Christ. Being a Christian is not something that we are supposed to do alone. To the contrary, while it is true that, that this is a personal matter, that your relationship with God certainly is a personal matter, but it is not to be a private one. When you and I were born again, we were adopted into the family of God, God's family. And that family is not only a great big network of people scattered all over the world, it is also a very small family, a small nuclear family that lives together in a particular congregation. We call this congregation Calvary Bible Church, but we don't even need a name. And in the places that I go overseas, in, the, in countries that are they're hostile to Christianity, they don't give names to their church. Uh, Everybody knows where the building is. It's the people who are the church. They simply call the building the house of prayer. And everywhere you go, you'll find a house of prayer, a house of prayer, a house of prayer. They don't care about a name. They don't care about the building. The community of Christ, the community Christ is what is of value to God. And the community of Christ is very much like your biological family metaphorically speaking. You no doubt have relatives in places you maybe have never been before. My family is originally from Scotland, as you can maybe tell from my last name, Kirk, which means, anybody know? It means church. Isn't that ironic? There was some kind of providence there. Um, And even to this day, if you go to Scotland, what do they do on Sunday? Everyone gets up, they get dressed, and they go to the Kirk. Um, you may not know, and I certainly don't know who my relatives are in Scotland and in Wales, but most of you also have a nuclear family, and you know those people very well. They share the last name. They live in the same house. They are the people with whom you interact at some level almost daily. This is what the church is like. This is what the local church is like. Having extended family, that's great. But the community that makes up our particular household is the group of people for whom and to whom we are accountable every day. You see, the gathered church is not merely to be a collection of random individuals who have no interaction the other six days of the week. No, God has called us to live in community. For many believers, involvement in the church is more like going to see a movie than it is to be a household or a family. 
But the New Testament portrays Christians as members of God's household, not merely at a theological level, but at a very personal level and a very practical level. So let's take a few minutes to drill a little more deeply into the scriptures on this issue. Because the central feature of the community of Christ is the gospel, I'm going to refer to the church periodically in this message as um, gospel community. Because I want you to get familiar with that term, gospel community. And as we go here, I will allude to it, and then later on I'll explain it, and I think it'll make sense to you. What practical teaching does the New Testament offer us about living in gospel community? Well, first it teaches us the necessity of gospel community. It teaches us the necessity of gospel community. Now, there are a number of key terms in the New Testament that the authors of the New Testament have used while speaking about the church that lead us to believe that it's to be more than a gathering. Rather, it should be the kind of gathering that is a community that makes, and here's a key phrase here, it makes the invisible gospel visible. And that's the reason, or one of the two reasons, that I'm calling this gospel community. The purpose of the community is to make the invisible gospel visible. And you've heard me say over the years that the reason that you exist is to show the world what God is like and what Christ is like and what the gospel is like. That's why you're here. It's not just to have pleasure. It's not just to have fun. It's not just to make money and find a great spouse or, or what, and have children. It is to make the invisible gospel visible. So Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your Father who is in heaven. And one of the biblical terms for such community is found in 1 Timothy 3.15 where Paul writes, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct, conduct himself in what? The household of God. Say that with me. The household of God. The oikos of God. How many of you like eating yogurt? Right? There is a yogurt called oikos, or orkos, depending on how you want to say it. It means household. It's a Greek word, household. And Paul is saying, I want you to understand, Timothy, as you minister in the church of Ephesus, I want you to understand how people ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So you see, the church is God's household. We are God's family. God is our Father. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that makes our relationship something very unique and special indeed. If you've read the New Testament at all, you no doubt have seen many instances where Paul offers us instruction on how we are to relate to one another. In fact, earlier this morning, Keith read a fantastic passage from the New Testament about how we are supposed to uh, relate to one another. And there are so many texts that speak to that same issue, I, I, could, I had to cut some of them out of my message today or the child care people would have my head. For example, Romans 12, Paul confronts the believers, listen carefully to this term, 
Paul confronts the believer's exaggerated sense of individualism. Now tell me, this was not written directly to the American church. I mean, this is timeless truth, and it, 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 is, it cuts across all cultures and, and centuries. In Romans 12, 3 through 5, here's what Paul said. We'll come back to Ephesians in a little bit. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of, now you might think he would say, members of Christ. That's not what he says. We are members of one another. We are members of one another. In the first two verses of this chapter, which you're very familiar with, uh, Paul cautions us about letting the world dictate how we relate to one another and to God. It's where Paul says, uh, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, um, but present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he goes on and on about how we should relate to one another as people who are laying their lives on the altar for the glory of Christ and the good of his church. Why does he tell us this? Listen, here's a little hint at how, how to approach understanding the Scripture. When Paul starts addressing an issue, of a people issue, you should ask yourself, I wonder what problem, what problem could Paul be addressing? In some cases it's explicit, some cases not explicit, but here it seems clear that the problem was that there were people in the church, and many people in the church, and maybe it was the culture of the church, that had too high an opinion of themselves. And when I say too high an opinion, it's not that they were going around boasting that they were greater than everyone else, uh, although they were boasting in their gifts, which we'll talk about in a minute, but rather that, that what they were saying was, I can do this on my own. I can do this by myself. I got Jesus. I got the Holy Spirit. I can do this on my own. I don't need you. I don't need you. You ever thought about that? Have you ever thought those kinds of words when there is a brother or sister in Christ that got crossways with you and you didn't like it and you're tired of messing with them? And did you think in your mind, I don't, I don't need you. Fine, that's, that's fine, I don't need you. The Apostle Paul is saying, stop that. Stop that. You don't realize it, but you all need each other. It's the way God designed the church. Each individual thought of himself as kind of a lone ranger Christian. I was trying to come up with a better term than lone ranger because so many of you um, don't know what the lone ranger is, you younger people, except for those few who like watching the old black and white TV shows on Netflix or something. But the lone ranger, the lone ranger is, is the one guy and he does it all by himself, whatever it is. 
He had a personal relationship with God. These people did in, in this church in, in Ephesus and in Corinth, by the way. They had a personal relationship with God, a spiritual gift, and a place to show it off, namely the church. But Paul is teaching us that it's precisely the wrong way to think about the Christian life. The church is not a loose collection of independent individuals who gather together for a few minutes on Sunday morning. We are less like a crowd gathered to watch a football game than we are individual parts of a living body. We are members of one another. Members of one another. And what does that mean? Well, it means that God has designed the body of Christ in such a way that the members, listen carefully, so that the members are interdependent upon one another for spiritual health and growth and fruitfulness, just to name three. In the human body, which is where the analogy comes from, the heart only lives so long as it is organically connected to the lungs and to a lot of other systems. And the eye can only see so long as it is organically connected to the brain and to some other indispensable biological systems. And so it is with members of Christ's church. We cannot function as Christians in a manner that pleases the Lord. Now, this is really important, and you've heard me talk about pleasing the Lord throughout this morning, because that should be our goal. It's what Paul says, his ambition, whether at home or absent, is to be pleasing to the Lord. I mean, that's, that's like our highest calling. Another way to say it is, I live, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do to the glory of God. It's the same thing. But we cannot function in a manner that does glorify God, that does please Christ, when we are divorced from gospel community. Now, I know there are exceptions. Like, if you're, you're about to be a Christian martyr and you're in jail, or if, um, if your name is Robinson Crusoe and you get stranded on an island, uh, then, then certainly that's God's will for your life and you are going to have to make do. But that's not normative. We're talking about what is normative from the biblical perspective, from God's perspective. From God's perspective, it is not normative for a believer to be separated from his church. And you'll never find a believer in the New Testament who is not connected to a local church. Uh, this is normative. This is the clear testimony of the New Testament. Now, we've been looking at Paul's comments in Romans 12, but we could just as easily look at his teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, in verses 20 and 21 of that letter, this is what he says. Different church, right? First one to Ephesus, or to Rome, and now to the one in Corinth, and he's saying this. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, now listen to these words carefully, I have no need of you. Nor again can the head to the feet. I mean, those are as far away separated members as there can be. And the, the head cannot say to the feet, here's that phrase again, I have no need of you. I don't need you. I mean, that's how we would say it, right? I don't need you. 
Rather, that the members may have the same care for one another. Listen, my friends, if you think you can live a life that is pleasing to the Lord without the contribution of the other members of gospel community, you are biblically mistaken. You are sadly mistaken. You are spiritually deluded in this area. It's popular these days to hear professing Christians say things like, I hate religion, but I love Jesus. Really? So, what part of Jesus do you, do you like again? You don't like his body. You hate his body, but you like him. Uh, this is inconceivable in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Or they might say, I love God, but I have no intention to be a part of an organized church or organized religion. But isn't that just another way of saying to the other members of God's household, I don't need you. I don't need you. And Paul is saying, stop having such a high opinion of yourself. Are you God? Are you Jesus? Are you the Holy Spirit? Well, guess what? Even they lived in community and still do and will forever. God never meant for you to live as a Christian alone. This is not the way to glorify God, and it is not good for you. It is not good for you. You know, it's, um, it's not what you don't know that will get you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. The reality is you don't know what you're missing. You think everything's fine because you don't know what God has for you in the church. You say, well, there's conflict. Uh Uh-huh. That's true. Uh, Wherever there's sinners, there's going to be a ruffling of feathers. There's going to be a rasping. There's going to be friction. And you know what? Even that is designed by God for your sanctification. And praise God, in the church, we have the means for addressing those issues. This is not the way to glorify God, separating yourself. Show me a Christian who is not intimately connected to the other members of the local church, and I will show you someone whose spiritual health is iffy at best, and they may not even know it. Show me a Christian who doesn't have a vital role in gospel community and I will show you one whose spiritual maturity is stunted and whose battle against temptation and sin is frequently, if not usually, marked by defeat. The point is, God never intended for you to live as a lone ranger Christian. And the misguided belief that you can is rooted not in faith in God's promises or faith in his commands, but rather in an unbelief that manifests itself in an individualistic aloofness from the other members of Christ's body. And it's not right. And it's not good. I said at the beginning of this series that I believe far too many Christians have a low view of the church. And now we're getting to where the rubber meets the road. Most of you have probably seen those tests that make their way across the internet from time to time. 
kind of make you smile and you pass them back and forth. They usually start with the words, you might be a something if, like you might be a redneck if, or you might be a homeschooler if, and I won't waste our time by filling in the blanks there, even though they're humorous. But let me give you some that aren't very humorous. You might be a Lone Ranger Christian. If your usual pattern is to show up for worship service and then slip out the back door as soon as the service is over, you might be. You might be a Lone Ranger Christian if you're not serving the other members of the church in a consistent, meaningful, and regular manner. You might be. You might be a Lone Ranger Christian if you're not part of one of our small groups, not because you can't, but because you really, you just don't want to. You might be a Lone Ranger Christian if you're not actively helping someone else in the church grow and change, or not asking others to help you grow and change. You might be a Lone Ranger Christian if giving financially makes you feel like you've done your part to serve the church, even though you have little or no interaction with the church apart from the Sunday gathering. Beloved, Christ is not honored by being a Lone Ranger Christian. Large swaths of the Bible should be removed if God doesn't care about these things. And Paul's teaching us that participate, participation in gospel community is not optional. It's not optional. It is necessary. It is imperative. We need one another. And that, beloved, is by design. God's design. If we had time to look at Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, we would see that God has so ordained things that the church itself cannot grow to maturity unless every part is working properly. In fact, I told you to flip to Ephesians, so since we're already there, look at 4, verse 15 and 16. I want you to hear this. Verse 15, he says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is how the church grows to maturity. All the members are working together. All the people in the church and so if the members of God's household desire to be protected, nourished, vital, fruitful, and strong, they must be active, contributing members of gospel community, which is the church. And I have no doubt that this is what was on the mind of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 when he throws down a pointed exhortation saying, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, this, this is not a new problem. I mean, the author of Hebrews recognized this problem even then. I can have Jesus without the church. And, um, and the biblical authors are consistently saying, be careful, 
beware. If you have that wrong of an opinion about God's church, you may have a wrong opinion about Christ. It's just a warning, but it's a grave warning. And so we see that the church is the Father's household, and being a functional member of that household is not optional. It is necessary. And to help us grasp this truth a little better, I think it would be helpful to consider how gospel community is different from any other kind of community in the world. Let's take a few minutes to think about that. This is number two, the uniqueness of gospel community. The uniqueness of gospel community. Now again, we're in Ephesians, so look at Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm just going to kind of bounce around here because we don't have time to read it all. Of course, this is that great chapter, right, uh, that talks about where you got your salvation. It is by grace through faith because of Christ, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? But Paul's point in this passage is that the gospel offers us and secures for us salvation that is by grace alone, but that the gospel does more than just save us. It also changes the way we live. And Ken Basinger, often in our early years together here as the church, uh, would always remind me that when we get to Ephesians chapter 2 and we quote verses 8 and 9, I can still see him pointing his finger at me saying, but don't forget verse 10. Verse 10. So let's not forget verse 10, which says this, is Ephesians 2.10. Um, For we are his workmanship, that is, He created us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. In other words, if you have true salvation, then one of the fruits of that is you're going to be working. You're going to be serving. You're going to be ministering to people. You're going to, be sacri- you're going to lay yourself out as a living sacrifice, as, as Paul said in Romans 12. The gospel does more than just save us. It also motivates us. It prods us to live a certain way. And when we read on down to the end of chapter 2, we discover that one thing the gospel creates in us is unity. And the truly amazing thing is that the unity that Paul speaks of is one that unites people who otherwise wouldn't naturally be attracted to to one another or even to get along with each other. Look at verse 15. He says, he reveals that the atoning work of Jesus on the cross has, watch this, broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Moreover, verse 16 reveals from these two naturally these two naturally hostile communities he has created one body through the cross and has listen to this phrase has killed the hostility between us and then in verse 17 he declares that we are now mutually members of God's household sound familiar This is repeatedly what the New Testament authors say. You are each members of God's household. It's important to note here that this kind of unity is not natural. It is created by the gospel. Hence, we have the term this morning, gospel 
community. What is God's purpose for creating this new community? Birthed by the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ? Well, shift your eyes over to chapter 3, verse 10. He tells us why. He hints at it when he talks about our salvation, that it is not by works, but by grace, so that no man can boast. No man is going to be lifted up as, and be exalted because he figured out salvation. Rather, it is a work of God. Now here we're talking about the life of the church, how he's bringing people who are at odds, I mean whole people groups. I mean there's only two in, in the mind of the Jew. There are Jews and there's everybody else. There's Gentiles. And the two have nothing to do with each other. Why, God, did you create the church like this? Why bring these two groups together? And here's what Paul says in 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be known or set on display to the rulers and authorities on earth? No. In heavenly places. Paul saying, God created gospel communities so that even the angelic host will be impressed with the glory of it all. Even the angels of God will say, that is magnificent. God, only you, only you could have done this. Only you would have thought to do this. Consider what it would take. Consider what it would take to bring two groups of people like this together. How about this? Consider what it would take for liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans to set aside their mutual hostility toward one another, repent of their sins, and covenant together to live in mutual transparency, humble, edifying, and sacrificial community for the other's good and the glory of God. Uh, most of the news stations would go out of business. What would it take? You say, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean... Why even bring it up? I mean, that's that's sheer foolishness. Oh, oh, really? How about this? That's just that's just an example. You know what? Want to know what the reality is? Listen, the hostilities between Jews and Gentiles was far worse, and it still is. Um, when I was over in Israel last year, I stayed in a hotel on the Mediterranean wasn't until we got into the hotel that we noticed all the windows on one side of the building had steel shutters, thick, like two-inch steel thick shutters that would automatically close. And that's when I looked on my GPS and realized that we were right across from the Gaza Strip. So when you turn on the TV and you see the rockets coming from Gaza into Israel, they're kind of shooting at that hotel. <laughs> and, uh, and you know what? It happens. It's happening all the time. They're they're firing rockets from one to another. And it's not just the, the, the Gentiles shooting at the Jews. It's the Jews shooting at the Gentiles. And they're digging tunnels under each other. They're blowing each other up. They're blowing themselves up. I mean, witness the frequent military attacks that take place between the Arab Gaza Strip and Jewish Israel to this very day. 
Jews and Gentiles are absolutely mortal enemies and always have been. What would it take to bring those two groups together? You know what? One of the glorious things when I went to Israel last year, I mean, the most amazing thing was to visit the little churches and to see Jews and Arabs eating together, laughing together, worshiping together, sharing community hospitality with one another. And you know what? These are people who have relatives, probably most of their relatives know nothing of that. All they know is the hostility. But in Christ, it's eradicated. Nothing short of a massive miracle could do this. And yet this is exactly what we have everywhere there is a gospel community. So I told you there were two things that distinguish it. The second one is this. The primary feature of gospel community is that it consists of people who do not share many things in common besides their love for Jesus and his word. The primary feature of gospel community is that it consists of people who don't share many things in common besides their love for Jesus and his word. Listen, anyone can build a community. Anyone can create a community. You don't need the gospel to create a community. Can, can I just say something shocking? You don't even need God to create a community. All you need is a group of people who share common interests. What makes gospel community is when the only explanation for why these individuals meet together is the transforming, unifying power of the gospel. That's what makes the true church. That's what makes real gospel community. And beloved, we need to be careful, even here in, in practical ways, and, and I don't want to be too heavy on this because you can go too far. But when it comes to our ministries together, why do you choose, within this church, within this gospel community, why do you choose to hang out with the people that you do also from this gospel community? Is it only because you share similar interests or you have similar experiences that draws you together? Young couples are comfortable with other young couples. Single moms are drawn to single moms. Senior citizens naturally gravitate toward bingo. <laughs> oh, that's not in my notes. <laughs> other senior citizens found out this year I am one. I sent my AARP back. No, not really, but I wanted to. Um, you know what? The world, uh, both Jewish and Gentile, probably Arab and whoever else, the Greeks, the Chinese, uh, they all have groups of single adults, and they're lost, and senior adults, and they're lost. You don't need to have God to create community. But if there's going to be gospel community, it's the only reason we meet. Or it's the primary reason that we meet. I love my small group. It's uh, pretty diverse. 
I've never been around so many single guys and single girls for a length of time like this. And you know what? We've got a couple of older married couples like me. Both, both of our couples are seniors. Um, if, if Phil McKenzie is a senior citizen, which I'm pretty sure he is, <laughs> probably older than me, although maybe he looks younger. Um, and, and we've got a couple of, and we've got at least one young family that shows up with a baby. And I look around, I've been watching it, and I keep thinking, there's something special here. And then I, I get to this part of, of this series, and I realize this is what it should be. It's what it should be. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that it's wrong for you to meet with people who share common interests, common backgrounds. In fact, I, I would say, get involved with groups in the city where there's lots of unbelievers who gather for that purpose and be a light there. Draw them into the community of Christ, into gospel community. But I am saying this. We should understand what God intended when he created the church. And as we're making decisions about who we're going to have over for dinner, whose small group we're going to visit or, or, or become part of, or whatever it is, don't make that decision based on, will there be anybody there like me? Rather, make that decision by asking yourself, would God be pleased for me to show up regardless of who's there? And if the answer is yes, then go. Then go. I mean, unless you're the only guy there, like yesterday, I, 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 the ladies' fellowship, guys don't need to show up for that. So all I'm saying is, I don't want to overstate the case, but we should be thinking about these things. When you have people over to dinner or lunch for fellowship, who do you invite and why? We'll talk about that next week. Now clearly, as I said, there's nothing wrong with meeting such people, but we need to understand that what makes the church unique in this world is that it binds together people who would never come together in mutual love and, demote it and devotion to one another apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the uniqueness of gospel community. And that brings us to the final point I, wanna, I want us to think about this morning, namely the benefits of gospel community. Here are some benefits. And, and I'm Really, what I've done is simply grab a few of the 31 or 32 one-another commands of Scripture, just to give you a taste. There are far more than what I have time for here. And so here's, here's what we need to see at first. Let's just lay some framework or some groundwork. At the heart of the gospel community, it's the biblical concept of fellowship, right? Fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, the Greek word for fellowship is one that so many of you already know. If I were to ask you what the Greek word for fellowship is, you would say koinonia. That's right. If that's new for you, that's okay. Koinonia. It's fellowship. And it's translated variously participation, partnership, sharing, and, of course, fellowship. Fellowship is the primary difference between living with your nuclear family, and visiting with your extended family. Your out-of-town relatives may be people that you like, 
and you accept them as extended family. You can't wait for Thanksgiving to see them and Christmas, and you may look forward to seeing them every opportunity you get. You love them, and you share a relationship with them, but it's different than your relationship with the church, with your, excuse me, I'm breaking the analogy, with your nuclear family. They are your extended family. Your nuclear family, however, is quite different. These are the people, when we're talking about the church, they are the ones with whom you live in gospel community as a regular part of the normal Christian life. This is normative. These are the ones with whom you share life in an interdependent way. We rely on each other. We depend on each other. And we hope there are those who are depending on us. This is by God's design. The church was created with the intention, as I said earlier, of showing the world what God is like, what the gospel is like in in tangible manners. And the three persons of the Trinity live in interdependent unity So we, the members of this local church, are to live together in dependent, interdependent unity. Now, what does that look like in the local church? Well, we could spend several weeks looking at all of the New Testament teaching on the subject, but today let me just share a few. What are some of the benefits of being a part of the gospel community? First, Gospel community authenticates, easy for me to say, gospel community authenticates gospel witness. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Then he says this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples If you what? Love one another. It is your love for one another. It's your ministry to one another that authenticates your gospel witness. And beloved, I won't bore you with the story of my mom and dad coming to faith, but except to reiterate once again, the thing that caught their attention first was the love that they saw in this church for one another. They'd never seen it before, and they both had grown up in church. And it just brought this text to life for me. And, and others of you have said, you know, I brought family members here who were unbelievers, and, and uh, by the time we left that Sunday morning, they had a lot of questions because they'd never seen a group of people who loved each other, and they would stop after the service and pray for one another, and it was visible. You could see it. The gospel was made visible in the way people were loving each other and praying together and serving one another. Secondly, gospel community provides practical help for the needy. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's what? Burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. To bear one another's burdens means you get your shoulder under their load. What kind of load are they carrying? You get under it with them. Help them carry it. I mean, it may be a financial load or an emotional load brought about by loss or pain or disappointment. 
member of the gospel community should never have to experience significant trial alone. Let me just say that again. A member of any gospel community should never have to face or experience significant trial or trouble alone. Don't think that somebody else is going to handle that. There's a lot of people at Calvary. Somebody else is going to handle that. Find out if somebody's handling it. Find out how you can help handle it. Because some of the load is going to be bigger not only for that person to carry, but bigger than six or eight of you can carry. We are called to bear one another's burdens. Thirdly, gospel community lifts people from under their burden of sin and guilt. Listen, the reality is that we are all sinners. And when we sin, it affects us in profoundly negative ways, even if we're not immediately aware of it. Sin always leads to isolation. You've got to keep it hidden. It causes us to hide and withdraw from the things that we should say and do and would say or do if we had a pure heart. The more isolated a person, says Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved with it, the more disastrous the isolation. In confession, however, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart and sets the sinner free. And so we are exhorted in James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another. Bonhoeffer continues, worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are. But it does not know the godlessness of men. Let me, let, (laughs) I've got some competition going on here. (laughs) And it's a woman who's, Siri. Let me read this again. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are but it does not know the godlessness of men. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. But in the presence of a brother, I can dare to be a sinner. I think Bonhoeffer is right. It is only in gospel community that we would dare obey the command, confess your sins to one another and be set free from the weight and isolating power of sin. Fourthly, gospel community protects us from unbelief. I love this passage, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Here's what the author says. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. This is to the church he's writing. Let me, let me read it again. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Happens all the time. And not only now, but back then. But here, here's the, the remedy. But encourage one another. How often? Day after day, as long as it is still called today. What day is this? Today. (laughs) 
It is today. If it is today, then it is time. This is the time for you to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not waver, but to hold fast and draw near so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's he saying? Get involved in each other's lives. Ask questions. Ask questions. You know, so often when I'm bold enough to pull a brother aside and ask him questions, uh, they afterwards tell me, no one, has, no one has asked me these things. No one has dared to ask. Thank you for asking. This is what we do in gospel community. When someone calls for counsel because they have fallen into sin, one of my first questions is, and this may sound counterintuitive, but hear me out. One of my first questions is, are you an active, functioning member of a biblical church? Do you live in gospel community? That's what I'm asking. Most of the time, the answer is no. You see, the community of the church is designed by God to protect us from the unbelief that justifies sin and ruins us. It's a tremendous protection against disastrous choices. And so, the gospel community protects us from unbelief. And next, gospel community is God's established context for soul care. Soul care. One big thing we have repeatedly learned here at Calvary Bible Church is that most of the problems that the social scientists have labeled disorders are actually problems of the soul that can be effectively and powerfully addressed through the careful ministry of the Word of God in the context of gospel community. I was listening to RefNet, uh, which is an app on the radio, and if you listen to it, you'll hear R.C. Sproul again and again and again and again and again. And it's just, just, it's a feast for the soul. And this week he told, uh, uh, they, they played this brief snippet of him speaking at, a, at an event. And he said, you know, years ago, many years ago, uh, when people were beginning to realize that I was a teacher and he was writing books, and he said, a, uh, he, said he had a dear psychiatrist friend of his came and he said he very seriously offered me a position on his staff in the psychiatric hospital. And he said, I'm a theologian. Why would you invite me? And he offered him over $100,000 salary, which back then was a lot of money. And he said, my friend, who is a brother in the Lord, um, why would you offer me a lucrative position at a psychiatric hospital? And the psychiatrist said, because everyone here knows, um, at least the believers here know, that nine out of ten times, the real problem is not a psychiatric problem. They don't need a psychiatrist. What they need is a priest. They need someone who can help them deal with their sin. And praise the Lord, R.C. didn't take that job. <laughs> but he's right. You know what you need for your psychological problems? Uh, it, it, most of the time, what you primarily need is a priest, someone who can settle with God 
your debt of sin and shame. And you have such a high priest. He is the great high priest who not only offered the spotless offering that would atone for sin of all who would believe, he would not only offer that sacrifice, but he would be that sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And concerning you, my brethren, Romans 15, 14, Paul writes, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish, that's the word for counsel, one another. What he's saying is, you, my brethren, the implication here, you know the word of God, you're filled with knowledge of God's word, you are competent to counsel. Don't let anybody tell you you have to get a certification in order to be a faithful minister of God's word. You don't. You don't. It may help, but what you need is the word. And perhaps this helps you understand why we're so committed to biblical counseling here at Calvary Bible Church. So many people over the last decade have been helped. So many marriages rescued. Many have struggled with panic attacks and sexual abuse and rebellious children and self-harm. They've been tremendously helped, and quite a few have, in the process, discovered the great high priest, the savior of their souls. I tell you, beloved, there are more benefits to living in a vital membership with gospel community than we could cover in a month of sermons. And they are all available to those who are members of Christ and his church. And so I want to ask you this morning, as your pastor, as one of your pastors, how is your relationship with the church? I'm not asking, are you here today? That may or may not be an indicator of your relationship with the church. Have you been holding yourself aloof? Perhaps you've been making excuses to justify keeping a comfortable distance from the community. If that's you, I just want to encourage you right now to repent for your joy, for the glory of God. Repent, confess to God that you have had a low view of Jesus' body, his church, and that you want to honor him by humbly becoming all that he wants you to be for the good of others and for your own spiritual vitality and joy. And I would just say, in addition to that, that every week when the elders meet early Sunday morning, we pray for those of you who are here and repeatedly show up, and you're lost, and you have never surrendered to Christ, you have never bowed the knee, You've never come to him on your terms. You think you're a, a Christian because you're an American and you own a Bible and you attend church once in a while. You may have even given a little bit of money to the church. That doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is when you come to Jesus on his terms. You come to him for a righteousness you desperately need, don't have, and cannot earn. And you confess to him, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I have nothing to offer you but my sin. 
will you receive me? And he has promised to anyone who comes to me on those terms will not be cast out. You will be received by him. You will be transformed by him. Your guilt, your guilt, you don't, listen, don't let anybody tell you you should forgive yourself. That's nonsense. You don't have the authority to forgive yourself. But there is one who does have authority. And he will forgive you. And he will cleanse your heart. And he will remove the shame. And he may do things in, in your heart, in your psyche, which, by the way, is just the Greek word for soul. He may do things in your soul that you never thought possible. And they happen all the time as people come to Christ. So come. Come to him. The God who adopted us into his household calls us to live in a kind of community that cannot be explained Apart from the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us this gift, the community of Christ, gospel community. We are unworthy of it, but we are so happy that you have. Lord, we praise you. We worship you because you are worthy of it. And we discovered that first when we realized what you did to forgive all of our sin, sending your son to live a righteous life so that his righteousness could be credited to our account. And then he died as a sinner. He died as if he lived my life so that all my sins could be forgiven. Praise you. Thank you for this gospel truth. I pray that you would mature us into a deeper, stronger more vital gospel community at Calvary Bible Church, at Living Hope Bible Church, and coming soon, Christ Fellowship Bible Church. The Father be glorified in us, protect us. Don't ever let us be a reproach to you, I pray in Jesus' name.